Measuring the sound of rockets. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA's recent launch of the Artemis 1 mission was really loud. That's according to new data collected by physics researchers. The team placed microphones across the area during the historic launch of NASA's SLS rocket. Well, just how loud was it? And why is it important to understand the behavior of sound? We'll hear from those researchers about the science of sound. Then, what does a member of InSync and the fall of the Soviet Union have in common? A space podcast, of course. We'll hear from InSync member Lance Bass about his new podcast, The Last Soviet. From rocket sounds to in sync, we've got a great show. This, I promise you, just ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. The launch of NASA's moon rocket, SLS, last year was really loud. That's according to new research, which aimed to better understand rocket noise. A team of researchers used microphones across central Florida to measure decibel levels of this historic launch. The data found sound levels three miles from the launch pad were the equivalent of standing next to a jet aircraft taking off. Here to talk more about these sound findings and why they matter are Rollins College professor Whitney Coyle and Brigham Young University professor Kent Key. Whitney, Kent, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. So the Artemis One launch, I was there. Um, it was quite loud. Uh, that is my 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 lay um my lay term for it, but you are scientists and you've actually measured the loudness of Artemis One. Um, scientifically speaking, how loud was this launch? It was, it was, uh, it was quite loud up for the people up close. We were actually quite far away making measurements. And so where we were sitting, it wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't very loud, uh, you know, 18 or 20 miles away. But uh, at five kilometers away, it was about 130 decibels, right? Which uh-huh. is the kind of uh, sound levels that you associate with a jet engine taking, you know, a, a, or a air, jet aircraft taking off. Uh-huh. That's quite loud. You were, you were close to it, right? But you're five kilometers away, right? So it's, uh-huh. uh, it, 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 it's, it's quite a sound level. Uh-huh. Whitney, how did you actually make these these measurements um what was what was the process and what equipment did you use so it was a a long process from start to finish but one of the things we had to do was get permission to actually be on base at kennedy space center and so we had quite a few stations set up around around the base which we could only get to um, with escorts which was logistically very tricky Um, And then we also set up some, so all those were unmanned. We weren't able to stay on base during the actual launch. So we had to set them up um, more logistical situation with all the solar panels for all the batteries that we had to, to get for all of our equipment. So we were running multiple microphones and computers from these, these stations that we weren't able to get to until, I don't know, 12 hours after the launch to make sure that we actually had acquired the data that we hoped to get and then we had man stations, so our students were the ones that got to be a lot closer. So I'm not sure how close was the. They were about eight to ten miles away. Eight to ten miles. So in Titusville um, yeah. and uh, in a couple other locations on the bridge, which was very cool. Uh, and they had microphones with them as well. And then uh, Dr. Gee and myself and a few other professors were uh, kind of between 
the launch and Rollins College in order to get kind of a, a I guess, a long range propagation data between mm-hmm. there and where we are stationed all the time. So it's very mm-hmm. cool. But unlike using your phone, right, to re- to record, you know, video or, or or whatever, these are the instrumentation is is scientific grade hardware. We, you know, we would mm-hmm. use to make measurements. So mm-hmm. uh, the data we got are are we know they're accurate because of the quality of the uh, instrumentation that we were using. Mm-hmm. It was it just kind of like a, a a microphone, or is it something a little more complex than than that to to make these measurements? It's a microphone. Uh, then with then you with the digitizer, then gets fed into a computer. But the microphone itself has a very good response, all the way from the very lowest frequencies in the rocket signal, all the way up to the very highest frequencies. And rocket mm-hmm. noise is unique because it's all the way below our uh, range of human hearing, all the way to above our range of human hearing, which is from mm-hmm. about twenty hertz to twenty thousand hertz. But, but rockets span that entire uh, range and then some. And so, uh, to, to, so to be able to capture both the rumble of the noise, right, and then kind of the crackling of the noise, uh, you've, got to, you've got to capture that entire frequency range. Mm-hmm. Whitney, maybe we should take a step back here. Um, and, and let me ask you this. Why is it important to, to understand the sound levels of this rocket, for one, and 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 in different locations. There are multiple locations you've had these these instruments out there. Why is it important to to kind of collate all of this data? Right. So as of right now, because that was the first launch of this type of rocket, we don't have a source characterization. We don't actually know. Like everyone has these kind of ideas of what might happen, but because the launch has not happened with that rocket, we didn't know. So few of the things is we don't know level, so of course we could just kind of stand around with the sound level meter, but we also don't know directivity, so where the sound is actually, first of all, going to come from and then how it will travel um, from the source out to wherever our receiver might be. So our receivers could be, of course, our microphones, but it could also be your ears. And um, depending on meteorological effects, um, ground effects, if the ground is hard or soft, there are lots of different things that are going to affect how that sound will get to your ear or our microphone. And so um, being able to take these measurements at multiple locations uh, all the way kind of around the the launch and also at different distances away from the launch will help us to be able to eventually model the sound so we can start to make predictions for future launches um, so that we can yeah better inform the community, but also just in general understand rocket noise. Mm-hmm. Kent, I'm reading this piece in fizz.org, um, and, and you're quoted saying that that there were some there's some misinformation out there about sound waves from Saturn V, like the fact that it melted concrete and caused grass fires. You you can say that that's that's not true, right? And and no concrete was was melted after Artemis one. <laughs> We can absolutely say that that's not true. Uh, that the, uh, the the sound levels, right, uh, are you know required to melt concrete are just simply non-physical. Um, mm-hmm. But but it's just amazing. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of well-meaning individuals out there on Reddit and other platforms that that start calculating some numbers and then they put them out there and then the next person says, "Well, look at that," and that must mean this. You know. And, and next thing you know, you've you created this legend, right? So this legend of the Saturn V, 
that uh, that just was completely non-physical. So we had re- written a previous article about about uh, that you know the sound levels were loud but much more reasonable and kind of explaining some of the physics. And so part of the purpose of these measurements and and this paper and to get it out quickly was to say you know the, the levels. Are, are not going to melt concrete, not going to cause fires. And, but, but it's important to know what they are for some of those reasons that Whitney mentioned. We don't know very well how to, you know, what those sound levels are going to be near, near a rocket and far away from the rocket. And so presently rockets and, and payloads are both are over-designed because we mm-hmm. don't, they, with the safety margin, so, so that they're more massive than they probably need to be. And so, if we had a better idea of that sound, we could uh, we could actually uh, optimize or, or make more efficient rockets that were less massive, required less fuel, and get up to space cheaper. And so, mm-hmm. lots of reasons to do that. Whitney, when it comes to the Artemis launch specifically, you know, where is this sound coming from? Kent Kent described it perfectly. You know, what I experienced there at the press site, there was that rumble. There's the crackle. Um, where does the sound actually come from on the rocket? Do we know? So based on right, a recent article by one of uh, Ken's colleagues, actually, at BYU, it's actually as the rocket is going up, there are a lot of sources there. So potentially the uh, the flame trench, right? A lot of noise is coming from that right, impingement of the jet from the rocket onto the flame trench and down. But as the rocket is is going up, that's what we're going to hear. That's what's going to propagate to us. And that's coming from the plume under the rocket. So when you you can measure down, I don't know exactly the distance, 13 I mean, nozzle it, diameters underneath the rocket is actually what we would consider the source of the noise that is, is going to come from, that's going to come to us eventually. But there are lots of different places, of course, that yeah. Uh-huh. And that noise is caused by just the turbulent interaction of that plume with the air. And so that uh-huh. turbulence kind of reaches a maximum kind of efficiency. Yeah, like uh, a certain number of, we, we talk, like to talk about things in scaling. And so a certain number of nozzle diameters, but, but that's going to be like 50 or 100 meters below the rocket is where the dominant noise is coming from. And so that's that's part of the purpose of these studies is to start understanding more where is the noise coming from and what are its characteristics. Mm-hmm. What role does does weather play in um, how the sound is is kind of propagated throughout the the, the area? How, how did you look at temperature, humidity, all of that stuff? Yeah, we've been looking at that a lot because we have. Um, we have students working on these projects, and one of the things that I have is a, a propagation model, so how we can kind of predict the sound that's going to propagate from a source, so the sound leaving a source. And in that model, I need to know the humidity, temperature, wind speed, and direction, because that is going to affect the, the levels that are received, again, by the ear or the microphone. And so one of the things we noticed with this really interesting night launch is that we have different locations where our microphones were, like coming out kind of around the rocket, but they're at different distances away. So we had one microphone that was, I suppose, due west about 30, no, about 20, 20, 20 miles. miles, 20 miles due west towards Rollins. And then another one that was basically south towards Cocoa Beach. 
they were about the same distance away and one of our microphones got about a hundred decibels the other one got nearly nothing hmm. so and we had two people that were at that station saying we saw it we saw the light we saw that it was it was going up there was a rocket and we didn't hear a thing so we are pretty sure we can't say for certain but we are pretty sure that there's some very interesting weather effects um, potentially ground effects but more likely weather effects that were happening between our rocket and our uh, microphones there mm-hmm. what's next i mean is there a plan to do this for for the next artemis launch for other heavy launch vehicles like like Falcon Heavy and, and possibly Starship and the Super Heavy Booster when it launches from Kennedy Space Center? Are you going to slap some more mics on those launches? Absolutely. That's, that is absolutely, absolutely the hope. <laughs> and, and, one the, and, and the reason for doing that, right, it's not, I mean, number one, we want to provide meaningful opportunities for students, right? These are amazing training opportunities. But the second reason is that there's just, we have such a poor understanding of the the source physics we don't understand how it's traveling to the receiver like whitney said and we don't understand how people and the and, and animals are are hearing or perceiving the noise and what's startling what's damaging what's annoying and and so by gathering as much data as possible from different types of rockets particularly these bigger rockets right like as the, as you mentioned falcon heavy uh starship things like that we can start we can start to predict those effects and look at what kinds of, of impacts they're having uh, on the, the the payloads, the launch pad structures, and then farther away, the communities and the environment. It was Rollins College professor Whitney Coyle and Brigham Young University professor Kent Gee. Still to come, our conversation with NSYNC's Lance Bass about his new podcast, The Last Soviet. Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. NSYNC's Lance Bass was a global superstar in his boy band days. You may also remember he trained to go to space. That mission on a Soyuz capsule in the early 2000s never happened, but it did continue to scratch Bass's itch for space. His newest venture is hosting the podcast The Last Soviet, which tells the story of cosmonaut Sergei Krikalev's 313 days stranded in space when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. Lance Bass, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. So, Lance, the podcast is called The Last Soviet. It chronicles cosmonaut Sergei Krikalev's 313 days stranded in space after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. Lance, first of all, where did you come across this story? It's so fascinating. Well, originally I heard this story when I was training over in Russia. Um, I was so fascinated with other cosmonauts because, of course, in America, we learn all about our Apollo astronauts, but didn't get too much on Yuri Gagarin and all these other famous uh, cosmonauts that they had. So learning about these guys, especially from the guys who put them in space, because no one has really left Star City. (laughs) The same people that put Gagarin up are pretty much there today. Uh, even Sergey is there, you know, one of the heads of Russian, you know, space program. Um, so, you know, just talking about Gagarin and all these other ones, this is one of the stories that I was told uh, because Sergey was working on the uh, on the military base, um, and I just thought it was so fascinating to 
hear about life before the ISS, you know, the mirror days, mm -hmm. the small stations. Um, and I had never heard about uh, Krekalev's story, um, especially being stranded in space 313 days in the fall of communism in Soviet Union. It was such an insane time and and how his patriotism took over and he might not agree with half of what his country is doing, but as a patriot just stayed up there and decided to man the last, you know, outpost uh, for his country. You know, you, you, the story happened in 91. You came across it when you were training some two decades ago. Why is it relevant now? Why is it important to hear this story now? Well, I think it's relevant to hear stories like this because you know, space has always been about politics. Um, and a lot of people don't really realize that, you know, we get caught up in the whole patriotism of it all and the exploration and even the cosmonauts and the astronauts, they have the love of space. They're going to do their job and they don't really get into the politics of it all, but they've always been used by their governments, you know, uh, with politics always being, you know, the, the puppet of it all. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, 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 it's nice to understand this history and see how it unfolded, uh, especially in a, a time of the fall of the Soviet Union that we all think we know what happened, but to see it from the eyes of everyone that lived it, especially from the space program, and especially from a cosmonaut that was, you know, lied to himself. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, half the time he was up there, he didn't know what was happening. Uh, the only way that he knew the real news was from a girl in Australia that he would connect with on the ham radio that his country didn't even know he was talking to. <laughs> so he was getting all this, you know, side information of what was going on, not knowing what was happening with his family down, down there on earth. Uh, and especially as just few month old baby. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's the fascinating part of this story is how you maintain that connection to earth, despite, you know, that, that, that ham radio <laughs> is absolutely bonkers that that's how he stayed connected. Right. I mean, you have to do something. I mean, look, the ISS is a grand hotel compared to what he experienced. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, and I'm glad that he was able to get to the ISS. He was the first one on there. So, like, I'm so glad that he got to do both. <laughs> uh -huh. um, but there is a serious thing called space madness, you know, and it you will go crazy in space, especially with, you know, no one to really talk to, um, just doing your your daily duties every single day has got to be so monotonous. Uh, so having that that outlet to be able to talk to someone that you eventually considered a friend um, to kind of catch you up on life and what it's like down there, it, it's the only thing that kept him sane. Mm -hmm. Lance, I've, I've had a chance to talk to a lot of U.S. astronauts. It's interesting to hear your your perspective talking about cosmonauts. But But as you alluded to earlier in our conversation, it does seem like that, you know, space kind of transcends politics and boundaries down here on earth is is that the sense you got when when you were training in 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 uh in the early 2000s yes uh i loved the camaraderie between russia and america in the space programs uh everyone just respects each other and they do stay out of the politics of it all and you know, it's the it's the only thing that we have that I feel like the Earth is in it together. You know, we all want to advance our planet together by experimenting in space, exploring space. Uh, the ISS, how many countries have come together on this one little bitty, <laughs> you know, uh, machine? Uh, but we're all doing it for one reason, to make sure that everyone on Earth 
advances in a better way. It's not just for the countries. Everything we discover as America or Russia discovers for Russia, it's all going to be shared at some point. Um, and it's just really just bettered uh, our planet as a whole. And it's not there are no borders in space, mm -hmm. at least for now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Lance, let's go back to when you were training there in 2002. Um, why the heck did you want to leave the planet in the first place? What was your motivation to uh, to take on this mission? Uh, exploration. I've, you know, I think maybe watching Indiana Jones a few times made me uh, <laughs> that just the excitement of discovery uh -huh. uh, has always been with me since a little kid. And there was always space around me. So my grandfather loved space, my dad, my great uncle, who was, you know, an amazing World War II pilot uh, who lived at Marriott Island right next to Cape Canaveral. Um, they've always been fascinated with it, with it. And they, they kind of rubbed off on me. So watching movies like Space Camp, uh, even weirdly enough, growing up on Nickelodeon and watching Double Dare and the winner would go to space camp and I'd always dream like I want to go to space camp they would show all this amazing footage of these kids having the best time mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I eventually went to space camp and <laughs> finally my dad took me down to Cape Canaveral I saw my first launch um, and seeing that just really solidified my love for space and just going going somewhere that most men do not get to go. Uh -huh. uh, I want to be that person. Um, so I, I knew then that's that was my path. And uh, I found out I had to you know become a space engineer first, and then maybe you would be able to get to an astronaut class. So you know I had my I had the you know the right path in mind, and then all of a sudden, instinct just kind of landed in my lap. <laughs> like okay, I guess we'll uh, we'll go on this path instead. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned the movie Space Camp, because that was one of my favorite growing up, and I feel like that's a, a very underrated movie, but it seems like that's a, a, a through line from a lot of people that do have a, a passion for space. Um, so you did NSYNC, but but you also had the chance to train on this mission. Lance, you you trained in a, in a Soyuz capsule. That was going to be your trip up to space. I've seen pictures of a Soyuz capsule. It does not look comfortable at all. <laughs> what, was, what was it like sitting in one of those things? Uh, it's miserable. <laughs> uh, and even my mock missions, I didn't even have my bundles of clothes and everything that makes it even tighter. Mm -hmm. uh, but you get you get to know your crew very well. Mm -hmm. uh, you're on top of them. Uh, most people don't understand that your knees are into in your chest. You're in a ball, but you're there for hours. And so after a few minutes, your body just goes dead from waist down. So you can't feel a thing. Um, and you know, you're having little rods that you're having to push buttons and, uh, <laughs> it's, it's intense because, you know, my, my training was, uh, condensed into a very short six month, uh, training, which should take years. And it's not like the shuttle where you can sit in a seat and be like, Oh, I can just be a tourist. And this is great. No, you actually had things you had to do that would, you know, save your, your crew's life. So, you know, I was in charge of oxygen and that type of stuff. So you had to really know what you were doing so they don't kill your crew. Uh, but it is, uh, it is not a fun flight. Um, you definitely do it for the love of it. And, and a lot of people don't understand too is, yeah, it's like you shoot up to space, you're great, but no, you still have two days to get to the ISS chasing that ISS in this very small, like call it the BO. Um, and you're just sitting there with your crew doing, you know, if you can have some experiments you can do in that two days, great. But most of the time you're sitting there bored as hell, holding the bathroom from one of your crew members. <laughs> that does not sound very fun at all. Um, Lance, I mean, 
20 years ago, you, you were kind of blazing a new path with, with this private space mission. But since then, these private space missions are, are they're happening more frequently um, with the likes of SpaceX. Um, do you ever think that you'll try again? Is, is space in your future? Yeah, I mean, I think this. I think space is in everyone's future. Um, I love what they're doing with privatizing space. Uh, it only advances us quicker, um, especially for experiments and you know not having to wait for space on the ISS uh, or the Soyuz, which is there's a long line <laughs> to get up to the ISS. But uh, with these other you know rockets going off, it's great. We can get to our experiments a lot quicker and. For a lot of people, just to go up to space and float around—that's good enough for them. It's 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 a great roller coaster. Uh, that was never my want. Um, I don't think I would ever go with Virgin or anything like that. I mean, unless someone just gave me a ticket to go, sure. But I, I don't think I would ever <laughs> to go. Uh, you know, my dream is still to. Uh, I mean, obviously, my experiments are very dated, so I would have to choose something different. But my dream is to you know get a. Get a company behind me that needs to send an astronaut to space to do their experiments. You know, I was doing blood studies and environmental studies on the ISS, uh, lived there for 10 days. Um, and, you know, I, I wanted I wanted to do something that meant something uh, mm -hmm. and advances. I didn't I wasn't there just to kind of float around and take pictures for Instagram. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, Lance, if you want to do another podcast in space and you need a podcast producer, please uh, feel free to reach out to me. More than happy to help. <laughs> First time in space, yes. <laughs> but and, and finally, Lance, um, with with your podcast, The Last Soviet, what do you want listeners to to take away from from this? Um, I love history, and we learn so much when we don't just study our country's history. This really gives some great history of a country we probably don't know much about and have really been told to hate. Um, so from a from the angle of a cosmonaut who just wants to do the right thing and help this planet, um, it's a very interesting story to see how we all work together um, and how countries really do come together to to help everyone on this planet. Uh, but also, how politics play a huge, huge role in all of space exploration. Um, you know, the cosmonauts might not get into it, but the governments are definitely using these cosmonauts and astronauts as a political pawn in many, many ways. Um, so, you know, and the thing that sucks with this one, we had Sergei Krukalev, who is very active and one of the heads of the space program now. Um, he was going to be a part of this podcast and he was excited about it, but because of the war, of course, uh, Russia's not allowing him to do any interviews with any American, you know, podcaster. So unfortunately, we do not get to get a brand new interview with him. But what's great about this is we interview all of his friends, all of his colleagues. So you really get to see, like see and hear what was in his head. Um, and it's a beautiful podcast, the way that they bring in the sound effects. And it's one that you want to I would I would suggest, you know, if you're in your car driving to work, great, but at in the end of the night when you're ready to go to bed, put those headphones on and just kind of immerse yourself in this beautiful world uh, that they've created with The Last Soviet. That was Lance Bass, host of The Last Soviet Podcast, a production of iHeart Podcast with Kaleidoscope and Samuzdat Audio. 
Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed so you never miss an episode. Subscribe on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got more space coverage online. Visit WMFE.org. Are We There? It is production 90.7 WMFE News. Editorial guidance from LaToya Dennis. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Bye, bye, bye. Come on, I couldn't help myself. Thanks for listening.